good, surprisingly, actually. <laughs> joking, joking, joking. Dana's amazing. The entire Mahar family is actually disgustingly gifted. Um, so quick, quick note, um, you, uh, Robert prayed, uh, Bell Bell Tung Young uh, had pneumonia, uh, was treated this week at St. Francis in his home. If you haven't connected the dots, um, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but Gotong was uh, raised uh, in an orphanage in India that CPC has supported for a long time. Uh, Reverend Ken Tumbing uh, was here a month or two, month, six weeks ago, um, and Ken has run that orphanage for, for 20, 30 years. And, and Gotong was raised in that orphanage, raised and accepted Christ, and then uh, moved uh, to the States, and has, uh, they've moved from Virginia a, a, to here. He had no idea that we were a supporting church of the orphanage that he was raised and received Christ at, and he's one of our members now, and so that's Dad, Gotong, and next Sunday, we will baptize into our fellowship, Bell Bell. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the Lord at work. What a beautiful picture. So I hope that you'll come back next week, even though uh, I'm preaching again. <laughs> and enjoy the baptism. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is, if you do get on this week to uh, the live streaming General Assembly, uh, you'll be able to spot me in the crowd. Um, <clears throat> a few months ago, probably six months ago, I... Um, went to a, a Christian bookstore that was going out of uh, business. The guy's moving. And uh, he had a stack, I mean, tons of robes, probably 300 robes. So I said, I don't need a robe. I have one. Um, I only use it uh, occasion, occasionally, sparingly, uh, despite Patty Miles' preferences. But he had a cassock, like what Neo wears in The Matrix 2, and those usually go for like 350 bucks. And he said, I'll sell it to you for 50 bucks because I can't get rid of it. And I was like, awesome. So I bought it. And um, Ethan helped me figure out a good plan to use it. And it involved uh, getting motorcycle patches. So it, on the back, I have uh, what, it's not Hell's Angels. It says PCA, <laughs> Hills and Plains, TE, Jason Bobo. And I've got patches all over it that I've ironed on, and I'm going to wear it at GA this year instead of seersucker and bow tie. Um, anyway, if a fight breaks out, look for me. I'll be in the middle of it. <laughs> all right, so we are making our way through Acts. We're going to read Acts chapter 11 in just a second. Um, we haven't been able to take a family vacation in a couple years just because of how things uh, went, but we are leaving um, late July, early August. We're going to fly into uh, Vegas and rent a, a vehicle and drive into southern Utah. We're going to do um, uh, Bryce Canyon and Zion. We're going to hike those a couple days, and then we're going to drive over to Yosemite and do Yosemite for a couple days. We're going to show our kids what Eden was like before Eve tempted her husband to eat the apple. Um, and then we're, I'm joking, come on. And then we're going to drive through up to Tiffany's hometown of Gridley. If you remember um, last, this past spring, the Camp Fire in Northern California, that's her town is the, the next town south, 20, 25 minutes from Paradise, where we had a, a PCA church just decimated. 
um, and we're going to go be with her family. We haven't been there as a whole family for like nine years, by my recollection. Um, so we're going to all go, we're going to do that. And the, the point of that, to tell you that, is the trip is longer than it needs to be. But we're headed to a familiar place, and that's the way to understand Acts. It's longer than it needs to be. There's circuitous routes. There's stop-offs. There's random stories. Think of, like, just the weird roadside gas station that we might visit. There's just weird stuff that happens in Acts. But we're headed to a familiar place. From the minute Luke dipped his quill and started writing, he was getting us to Rome. He's pointing us to Rome. He's going to drag us there if he has to. But the church has to get to Rome because Rome is the centerpiece of the largest empire known to man at that time. And when the church gets into the heartbeat of the empire, it goes. The church explodes into places that the Bible doesn't even envision at the time. The Bible has no concept of uh, England. But the church ends up there as fast as it can because of Rome. So Luke's getting us to Rome. He's going to prove to his uh, benefactor, Theophilus, that the Christian message has veracity. It can stand against the different philosophies that are perpetuated in Rome. The, the, the Christian message has, has every bit as much veracity and truth claim as everything else that's taught in Rome. It, it, it's reasonable, and therefore it's believable and trustworthy. And so he's going to prove that again and again. And the main way that Luke seems to prove his point to Theophilus, one, that the Christian faith supersedes the Jewish message, but two, that it is superior to the polytheism of the Roman religion. That religion, the Roman religion of polytheism, is used for power. It's used for oppression. It's used to keep people in their place so that the government can keep doing its thing and churn people up if it needs to. And Luke's presenting the Christian gospel as better than oppression, better than the grinding, better than the bullying. And he says basically to Theophilus, Look, if you want to know what Jesus the Messiah is about, look intensely at those whose lives he's touched. Watch them and you will learn him. That's the point of Acts. The church is looking more and more like her Savior, made alive by the Spirit. So in that sense, discipleship is the main ingredient or a main ingredient in the entire book of Acts, even though it often sits in the background hidden in plain sight. Discipleship is a word we throw around a lot in the church. It's usually not received. It's, it's like if we had to rank our least favorite church words, uh, tithing and discipleship are, are near the top or the bottom, however the list would go. We don't love we love the theory of discipleship. The practice of discipleship, I get in your kitchen and tell you what you're not doing enough of or doing uh, too much of, and, and that part gets weird and awkward. So it's not a word that we tend to love, but I'm going to try and um, trick you into loving it today. So you're going to get it three times. Bruce, I was finally able to, um, oh shoot, I dropped the word. What's it called? Alliterate. Thank you. All the points are alliterated this morning just for you, Bruce. Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, theologians, British guy by the name of Alistair McGrath, has uh, written a nice little book. It came out a couple years ago 
probably riffing off of C.S. Lewis. It's called Mere Discipleship. And in the introduction, he says this, Discipleship is not a biblical term. It is, however, most certainly a biblical theme. And this is, this is bolded in my notes. I, I want you to grab onto this. It is about a conscious and committed decision to be followers of Jesus Christ in every way possible, including the way we think, the way we love, and the way we act. It's about growing in our faith as we quest for wisdom rather than the mere accumulation of information about Christianity. Discipleship, he says, is rooted in a secure, reflective, and deepening grasp of the Christian gospel. We don't love the, the thought, or we do love the thought. It's the practice of discipleship where we struggle. But here it is boiled down. It's Jesus coming to life again and again in the way you think, and the way you love, and the way you act. That's discipleship. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. And today, as we read through the entirety of chapter 11, we're going to find three ways that very different people in two very different cities express that conscious and committed decision to follow Jesus in the way they think, the way they love, and the way they act. Okay, let's read uh, this together. The whole chapter, try to stick with it. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. This all happened in chapter 10. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house, and he told us, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. And then it just skips all the way from Jerusalem and, and Jews to now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, 
who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, the Greeks, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus, at the ha- and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, here are your famished sheep. Would you, by the Spirit, alive and indwelling us, lead us into the rich pasture of your word and bid us eat our fill? Would you open our eyes and soften our hearts and show us our Savior again, how desperately we need him and how willingly he feeds us? Do this and receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people. Amen. When we open in chapter 11, we see Peter going to Jerusalem, the first of the two cities. He's going to Jerusalem from Caesarea because the apostles and other Christians in Caesarea, I'm sorry, in Judea, have heard that Gentiles have received the word of God. Now, it took a trance. It took God speaking to him and the Holy Spirit falling down on Gentiles to convince Peter that it was okay for him to sup and dwell with Gentiles. It took all of that. A trance, God speaking to him, and the Holy Spirit falling down. If it took all that to convince Peter, I'm sure there were questions swimming in everyone's mind in Judea. The Jewish Christians struggled to understand that the gospel was going out to the nations. Everybody had questions, but a, a certain group, the circumcision party, Sort of, a, a sort of pseudo-Christian-Jewish combination, they leaned into Peter, not with questions, but with accusations and criticisms. You went to uncircumcised men. You ate with people that we declare unclean. And there is a mindset present in some people that so distorts the gospel that it becomes the ungospel. It becomes bad news. It becomes a message that says, God loves the lovely. God loves the clean. God loves the pure. And that's terrible news. That's awful news. That's the worst news ever. Why? Because you're not lovely. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that, but Jesus said it. You're not lovely. You're not clean. You're not pure. And you can't get there. And so to subtly twist the gospel to have it mean an acceptance of the acceptable is the worst news that we could ever be given. 
There's none lovely, clean, or pure enough to warrant God's acceptance apart from Christ. I uh, frequently email myself documents early in the morning when I wake up between 3 and 5 and can't go back to sleep. I'll fish through different websites, which is terrible. It just makes you stay up longer, but I don't read the stuff. I think, oh, that's interesting. I'll read it tomorrow, and I forward myself emails, and that's where a lot of the illustration material that you get fed comes from. So I'd emailed myself something a couple weeks ago that I read this week. It's by a professor of philosophy uh, at Cambridge in England and uh, University of Antwerp in Belgium, which is a lot like Grand Canyon University where Tiffany and I met. Um, This guy uh, writes about how most of a person's beliefs, most of a person's desires are based on who we are surrounded by. Much of what I read from this brilliant guy went in one eye and out the other, in one ear and out the other. Like, it made no sense. He used words that I couldn't pronounce. But he gave an example that was perfect. He said, as an American, uh, when he was dwelling, living in, in London, uh, without, when he moved there, he didn't care about soccer or what Kim Drew calls football at all. But the apartment that he got was near... Uh, the Arsenal Football Club Stadium, and it was surrounded by Arsenal Football Club pubs and Arsenal Football Club coffee shops and Arsenal Football Club everything. It's basically the way Texans view Texas. London British people have their football clubs. They love their football clubs the way Texans embrace everything Texans. So what he found was living there, breathing that air, walking those streets was that he became a soccer fan. He became not just a soccer fan, an Arsenal fan. He began to think and wonder how the team was going to do that night. He began to root for them. He began to go to those things. Dwelling in an immersed world changed the way he thought, changed the way he loved, changed what he did. He was discipled, as it were, into becoming a fan of Arsenal. And that gets at the heart of why clear theology, why a warm and embracing ethos, why the activities that we give ourselves to as a church are so important. Discipleship is caught more than it's taught. When someone moves into CPC, they should feel us following Jesus with mind, heart, and hands long before they give the yes to our membership vows. It should be palpable. You should be able to smell what we're about and the way we teach, the way we open our heart up to others and Christ and the way we give ourselves both in time, talent, and treasure to, to the work of Christ in our church and in Tulsa. The Judaizers, the, the circumcision party, were rabid fans, not of Arsenal, but of law-keeping. While Peter, the apostles, and the disciples were singularly devoted not to the law, but to the grace of God in Christ. The Judaizers had a passion to earn God's love, while the latter believed the gospel proved that God loves, that God redeems, that God restores sinners. Not that we earn it, but that He does it. 
The one kept away from those they considered unclean. The other, believing God came to the unclean, became champions of grace. Both were operating to form disciples, but only one set were following the way to make disciples of Christ. The other disciples of law-keeping, there's a difference there. The power of Peter's response to his accusers, we're not going to read through the whole thing because he retells the story that we've read twice now. But the power of Peter's entire thing, I love it. It's kind of a trump card that can't be beaten. It's the ace of spades. Verse 17. I know you don't like it. Let me feed it to you this way. If God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? They have no response to that. That's very Jesus-like of Peter. Who was I to stand? Like, no one can dispute that. We can't be the kind of church or the type of people who love only those with their lives put together, only those who share our preferences, only those who looks like us. Because if God saves anyone, he saves them while they were sinners, while they were far from him. And for us to only uh, pursue those that we believe are close to him is antithetical to the mission and message of Jesus. Love of enemies, kindness to strangers, the embrace of those exceedingly different from us, That's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. So the first point of discipleship is that it always leads us to change our mind and ways of thinking. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's hard for an old man to change his mind on something so important. It's hard for an old lady, too. It's hard for a middle-aged man to change his mind about something so important. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes or sandals of these Jewish elders who, from birth, had prayed the prayer that I taught you last week from the Talmud. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. They'd been cultured, they'd been discipled for for a lifetime. Uh, 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 of a racist view, basically, a culturalist view, an elitist view. And here, how long have they held that view? And here Peter comes and says, but the Spirit came to them the same way it came to us. How can we stand in front of God? And these men change their mind. That's a miracle. They gave up long-held communal beliefs to move more in line with God's thinking read over it so quickly but this was a tectonic shift in their worldview and conscious and committed followers of Christ are disciples who are willing to change the way we think to be more in line with that of Jesus and that means something for each of us here this morning it means we need to be a lot more humble and a lot more open and a lot more careful and a lot more willing to engage with people that aren't already teaching elders in the PCA. Read broadly. 
Read broadly. Trust that the Lord will protect you and guide you into all truth. I heard from Ron Bigler this morning. Just this morning, he said, I think that all truth is God's truth. We should celebrate that. We can learn from people who are wrong about so many things, but right about something we need to learn and change and grow from. And that's what it means to follow Christ in discipleship with your mind. These men gathered may have been shocked to hear of God's grace going to the Gentiles, but they were able to admit they'd been wrong, wrong in their scope of his mercy, and they changed. Do you know that's why we offer Sunday school for our children? So that they grow to think God's thoughts after him, but it's also why we have adult education during that same hour, along with throughout the week various men's and women's studies. Because we get stuck in ruts and routines, we forget that the Spirit is at work to conform us into His image, us into His thought patterns. So we will hopefully continue that this summer, even as we're doing the um, testimony time. Maybe, maybe someone will share something that the Lord did in their life to change their way of approaching grace and approaching others with grace, and you might learn from someone. Don't be afraid of it. Love that Christ is at work changing your mind. That's grace for you. Discipleship demands new thinking, and God is still at work. Discipleship demands new thinking. It also demands new loves. Those in Jerusalem, those who've recently had their mind changed, catch wind of a report that God is at work in areas outside the borders of Palestine. And those men, those men who not long ago relegated God's work exclusively to their own kind, exclusively to their own lands, send one of their best and brightest, send Barnabas to Antioch that he might catalyze this movement, that he might come and bring it greater life, blow some wind into their sails. Verse 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, not Jealous, not fearful, not resentful, like the circumcision party. And he was glad, and what did he do? He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Oh, sweet Barnabas, sweet Barnabas the encourager, how the church needs your sons and daughters in her midst. Um, I love Christ's prayers. I love it. So many of you are Barnabases, Barnabasi, to those of us who lead and shepherd the flock. So many of you are. I have a, a drawer filled with thankful notes from you, and I, I want you to know I read them um, regularly each year. We do have um, need for more Barnabases, though. And I don't know if it's just the Reformed world or Christians in general. We are so fast to criticize, so fast to critique and point out flaws, and that needs to be repented of. I'm not going to do everything right. Dana's not going to do everything right. Ethan's certainly not. Jeremy? That's a stab in the dark with that joker. Yes, we can do everything better in, in a million different ways. But I hope you know that your elders, your deacons, that the people you have as staff members are striving to be faithful 
and joyful in it. And we need encouragement oftentimes much more than criticism. And the city of Jerusalem had long been home base for the religion of the Jewish people. In that city, virtually everyone looked and believed most of the same things about God and life. And so in Jerusalem, discipleship worked to reframe people's thinking. Antioch, however, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, then you had Alexandria down in North Africa, and then you had Antioch. Antioch was the wealthiest city, apparently, as well. It was a city uh, and a land filled not with one type of people, but with various beliefs, various practices of both historic Jews, which we hear in this passage, but of Jewish Christians who have fled out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, into a city where they can work and be safe as Jewish Christians. And of Gentiles, many of whom were coming to Christ, we see in great waves now. So you have everything kind of shoved in the pot, boiled together. Discipleship then in Antioch takes a decidedly different form than it does in Jerusalem. It's the form of Barnabas loving and blessing brothers and sisters, new brothers and sisters that he found. So discipleship is a dish best served together, best shared among friends. It doesn't appear that Barnabas was long present in Antioch before it became apparent to him that he needed someone even more capable to bring the best possible results to the growing number of Christians that were coming to faith in Antioch. So Barnabas was learning discipleship in loving and loving those once far from him, both in distance, because they're in Antioch, he was in Jerusalem, and in practice, they had Gentile practices, he was a Jew. But here we see Barnabas go get Paul from Tarsus and bring him down. Now, there's a recognition in discipleship that I'm better with you than I am on my own. Oftentimes, the best practice of training to follow Christ is simply bringing someone with you on a visit to a home, on a visit to a hospital. Um, invite them to a service project, which, by the way, this is uh, Brian Mahar and Dana have a friend who, whose house was uh, flooded um, in the last couple of weeks. And next Saturday, um, they could use help. This guy could use help um, hanging and uh, finishing sheetrock. So, you want a discipleship? Go hang some sheetrock with Brian Mahar next Saturday. Find him if you're willing to do that. Um, but invite someone to do that. When you're hanging sheetrock is a wonderful way to disciple someone. Um, we have a softball team. Your very own CPC Reformed Unicorns start off next Thursday. Our mascot is a rhinoceros because real unicorns have curves. Um, we play softball not because we're good. We're actually quite awful. We embody Jesus' teaching that the last shall be first. Um, we play softball not because any of us loves softball. We play because we want to build our lives around together. We, we want to see. You, you want to know if someone has an anger problem, watch them get called out on a close play. That's a brother we need to go pray with right there. <laughs> We do, we do softball, not for softball's sake, for discipleship's sake. It takes different forms in different places. But remember, 
that's what Barnabas is doing as he goes to get Paul. It's discipleship. Paul, let me teach you about what it means to follow Christ in a town like this. Barnabas is discipling Paul, who will, or Saul, who will shape and change the world. Bringing someone is a part of discipleship. But remember that Barnabas knew very little about Saul. And what he knew was probably still a bit nerve-wracking. We don't know how long it's been, maybe a year, maybe two years since Saul's conversion. But Barnabas, we don't know that he met him or knew him, but he would have heard of his pre-conversion reputation. And so as he goes to get him and ask him to join in, Barnabas is bravely loving Saul, the former enemy. There's no telling what Saul was doing in Tarsus, but if we know him from his personality that shows up later, he was probably making tents and teaching people about Jesus, still with no idea that he was about to embark on a quest that would change the world. The time he spent with Barnabas in Antioch, that year that they ministered there, would have been Saul's first extended time with a Christian friend. Barnabas was a disciple himself, learning to love new people, but he expanded the scope and impact of his ministry by involving another and training Saul to love as Christ does. So discipleship is in Jerusalem and in Tulsa, thinking God's thoughts after him, but it's also loving people and involving them the way God does. And it's also to be conscious and committed followers of Christ in the way we act. We see this lastly from the account of this prophet Agabus who foretold this great famine all over the world. And look at verse 29 there. So, what does it say? So the disciples, how beautiful the Spirit has come and been poured out on Gentiles and they're already taking up the name disciples. That's not just a Jewish name anymore. The church is filled with disciples. They determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers, to the Christians living in Judea. So think of that. These Gentile, brand new Christians believe a Jewish prophet emboldened by the Spirit, the same Spirit that indwells them. A worldwide famine, it says worldwide famine is coming. So who's going to be affected? The people in Antioch as well. They're going to be in famine. And they gather their funds and send it to the people who used to despise them. They financially support these newfound brothers who at the beginning of Acts 11 considered them outside the realm of God's saving. Now worldwide famine would have affected them as well. They would be in dire need as well. But hoarding funds and withholding grace would communicate something ungospel about these new Christians' thinking, about these new Christians' loves. They sent their two pastors from this cosmopolitan metropolis, sorry, uh, Barnabas and Saul. They send them with all the money they gathered back to Jerusalem, the dusty backwater, with bearded old men who used to be racist against them. They did it as an act of discipleship because following Jesus changes every aspect of a person who's made new in him. He changed their thinking. He changes ours. He changed their loves. He changes ours. He, changes, he changed their acts and he changes ours. Um, I don't know what causes you to stop down on TV, what immediately causes you to pump the brakes, but for me, it's nature shows. Nat Geo, Discovery Channel, um, 
uh, I stop and I'm, I'm sucked in immediately, typically, unless it's one I've already seen. Um, then it's just back to housewives. Um, that's not true. That's not true. But when I hear old David Attenborough's British voice talking to me about the leopards and the giraffes, I'm, I'm in. Whatever it is, I'm in. Um, and sometime last fall, Kaysen and I were up late fishing around, and we came across something on Nat Geo. And you can look this up. Um, it was a, 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 a story, an account of rural Peru. And the region of Peru where these tribes are located is a mountainous landscape. I'm going to mispronounce the name of the river, but it's the Apurimac River, apparently, um, raging 100 feet below. And every spring, as the new grass reaches its heights, the villages on both sides of this chasm harvest the grass, and they begin weaving and winding it together into larger and larger and larger ropes until there are multiple strands of grass that are bigger than my thigh. Huge, huge ropes of just grass. And every year they cut this old suspension bridge down and they restretch a brand new one because it's grass. It gives up. There's a day-long feast when the new bridge is installed. Music, dancing, and joy as they feast. And for 500 years, these tribes, the Keswakacha, I don't know. For 500 years, these tribes have been rebuilding this bridge. Four tribes who speak the same language. And that's a glorious picture of discipleship. A million strands of faithfulness wound together, bound up to change thoughts, loves, and actions done by peoples scattered into different regions, united only by a common speech, the speech of Christ, the name of Jesus, the message, building a way to bring others across so they might join in our celebration. Saul, Barnabas, Peter, and the faithful followers of Christ in Acts have passed down the ancient instructions of establishing and reestablishing again and again what it means to imitate Christ as he comes to life in us in the way we think our thoughts after him as we pursue the mind of Christ, as the way he changes our heart, gives us a heart of flesh, takes out a heart of stone, changes what we love, what we pursue, changes the way we give our hands and feet to the message of Christ. So let's pray for grace and faith to receive it well and then hand it off to those coming behind us, encouraging them to do the same. Let's pray to that end. Father, we do thank you for this message, the message of the finished work of Christ that turns us into those who follow you joyfully. It reminds us that you are never not at work loving us, never not at work serving us, never not at work blessing the world through your bride. As we receive this message today, would you knead it into our souls? Would you soften us that we might change our minds about what's wrong, our minds about what's right, but either way that it would be minds resting in the mind of Christ, that our heart would be aligned with yours and that we would be tireless in seeking to apply that grace into our church, into our families, into this world. Would you do that, our Father, in us and through us? And as you do it, you know how tired we'll get, you know how worn out we'll get, and so 
We need food and drink for our journey. Meet us here at the table and bless us again. In Christ's name we pray, amen.